Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a seasonal podcast series from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. In this podcast series, we draw on thousands of interviews to bring those stories to life. Please join us for the third season of the Berkeley Remix, entitled First Response, AIDS and Community in San Francisco. See, we didn't get any money. CDC finally got $400,000 for AIDS in the summer of 1983. It's exactly two years into the epidemic, we got $400,000. Now, just for laboratory equipment alone, I could have spent all that. Mm-hmm. And so all that money that we had been spending, those, I don't know, 10, 20 people working on AIDS, came out of other diseases. I came out of hepatitis, Jim Kerner's group came out of sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, it was just stealing from Peter to play Paul and then doing it adequately. Mm-hmm. Setting kind of a whole, a whole trend to do this half-assed. That was epidemiologist Donald Francis talking about a key aspect of the AIDS epidemic, the chronic underfunding of the research to track the movement of the disease through the population to try to isolate the disease agent that is moving from person to person, to develop standards and methods to treat those who are dying of AIDS, and to try to prevent new infections. It's important to remember that throughout this early period, very little was known about the nature of the disease. What made things worse is that politicians at the federal level failed to make AIDS anywhere near the priority they made other recent outbreaks of new illnesses, such as Legionnaire's disease. Here is part of an exchange between reporter Lester Kinsolving and White House Press Secretary Larry Speaks. Kinsolving was attempting to learn the White House response to the early reports of the AIDS epidemic during press conferences held in 1982, 1983, and 1984. This audio, archived at the Reagan Library, speaks for itself and was compiled by Scott Colonico for his 2015 piece in Vanity Fair entitled When AIDS Was Funny. It's important to understand that homophobia factored into the initial and continuous disregard for the epidemic at many levels of government, including the White House. Does the president have any reaction to the announcement of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in 600, over 600 cases. Yeah, over a third of them have died. It's known as gay plague. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing. That, uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wonder if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Do you? You didn't answer my question. How do you know? Does the president, in other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke. No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. Does the president, does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry? I don't think so. I don't think there's been any. There's been no personal experience here, Lester. <laughs> is the president concerned about this subject, Larry? That I haven't seems heard him to express have so much concern. Reaction here, I, you know. I haven't heard it isn't express. only the jocks, Lester. Has he sworn off water pluses? No, but I mean, is he going to do anything, Larry? Lester, I have not heard him express anything. I'm sorry. He has no, uh, no, expressed no opinion about this epidemic? No, but I must confess I haven't asked him about it. Would you ask him, Larry? <laughs> going back into this have you been checked? President going to what? Ban I, I didn't kissing. hear the answer. Uh, 
Uh, it's hard work. I don't get paid enough. This episode begins with a brief glimpse at the state of federal support for AIDS research in the early years of the epidemic, then returns to the beginning of the AIDS crisis in San Francisco to see how health professionals improvised research clinics for the new disease. In both cases, we'll see that researchers had to act fast in a new context. In President Ronald Reagan's words, government was not the solution, government was the problem. Public health and research budgets were slashed in the early days of the Reagan Revolution in an effort to cut the federal budget. By the time HIV arrived, researchers were already accustomed to working around the established system to do what needed to be done to advance their work. In the movies, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta is a gleaming, expensive federal research facility that is the first line of defense against the threat of the world's deadliest diseases. Here's Dr. Francis, and what he saw when he arrived from the regional CDC office in Phoenix to head up the National HIV Research Program in Atlanta. What was, what was it, Atlanta? What was your setup there? In Phoenix, we never felt like we had really a state-of-the-art program, but we had modern virology going on. And the way you do it there is when you're away from headquarters, you could spend some money, and at the end of the year, you'd get your hand slapped. And, Oh, God, I'm sorry, I overspent my budget, I'll never do it again, and then you do it next year. In Atlanta, that just wasn't the case. And so I walked into this lab in Atlanta. This is the Center for Disease Control. Clearly, it used to be one of the most outstanding laboratories in the world. And it was just a pile of junk. Old copper incubators and you know, no modern virology at all, and I was accustomed to it. Now, some labs had it, certainly not the one that I inherited. And I got kind of the some of the leftovers of, of a couple of programs and, and a couple of people were really interested, really good. So it was kind of interesting combination, none of which were mine. Now I was, by that time, the assistant director of the Division of Viral Diseases, so I had, which is the biggest division at CDC, and so I had access to a lot of people, but you just can't go out and steal somebody from influenza. I mean, you know, these are huge, you can't go down to the hot lab, but I did. Steal somebody from the Ebola group. Uh, but what you do is you kind of interest the director of these labs in this, and then they kind of help you with some of their technicians and stuff. But I, it's just a god awful way to deal with an mm. epidemic like this. That's the way you had to do it. So we patched it together, and when we got the first 400,000, we finally bought some incubators and bought centrifuges. Movies and TV shows that feature the CDC always dramatize the elaborate precautions taken to keep researchers and the public safe from mysterious and deadly diseases. Even the safety issues were an incredible problem because we weren't in the hot lab, and yet I knew we had something that was damn dangerous, um, and I didn't necessarily want to be in a spacesuit lab because that really inhibits you, but I wanted one where at least you didn't have tourists walking down the hallway. Which is what you have. Not only do we have tourists walking down the hallway, we have virus walking up the hallway in these disposable pans. Because we our autoclave, instead of being in each lab, which we could use for really a highly infectious material, was down the end of the hall. What Donald Francis describes here is the uphill battle researchers would face getting funding and resources to battle the AIDS epidemic. This story is not from 1981 or 82, but 1983, a full two years into the epidemic. 
The problem of money dated right back to the beginning of the CDC's setting up of a task force in the summer of 1981. A task force was set up. This was a time when CDC had no resources at all. Nobody wanted to spare anybody from any of their projects because they were already overwhelmed. And, and so nobody could get any staff to work up this new out outbreak where it's usually CDC's bread and butter. People will line up to get into new outbreaks and find new exciting things. This one was exactly the opposite. No one, no supervisor at least, wanted to give their folks up uh, for good reason, because at that point, the Reagan administration was asking us, would you be happy with a 10% cut or a 20% cut? You know, So it was just horrible. And people, some of our key junior staff was being laid off and fired uh, because there were no resources. The Federal Public Health Service became a political target just prior to the appearance of AIDS cases. The problem for the CDC, according to Donald Francis, was the politics of public health. The way it's set up in democracies is that we are not independent from the elected government or the politics. And at this point, CDC becomes a very political organization uh, until, as you can see now, the director of CDC is now a presidential appointee, essentially a political appointee. That's not good. It is not good. You need CDC to be independent. And you need CDC to have an insulation from politics. The consequences of the lack of funding were tremendous. Researchers had to decide between collecting data, analyzing data, or communicating results to the outside world. One of the things that just plagued us at the time were conferences. We were so short-handed that we hated it when stories would break in the newspapers. I mean, public health, we usually use the media to educate the public health. That's part of our job. But when that would happen with AIDS, there were, what, three of us, and your telephone would ring off the hook for three, four days, and you get nothing done. And that meant that everything else stopped. Mm -hmm. There was no one to take up the slack. Without money to pay for public communication the virus of fear spread far ahead of AIDS, further adding to the burden of the people living with the disease. Rumors even circulated that Haitians were responsible for spreading the disease, and so this new fear spread along the deep, familiar channels of hatred and suspicion that separate people. Once CDC is starting to do a weak job of both investigating and preventing the disease, then the state and local health departments do a weak job. They don't have the staff to deal with the media, to deal with intervention programs and take action. And then appropriately, the population starts feeling left out, that, that we're not being protected. And the vacuum is set, there's no defense for it, and the extremists move in. And then the government's going to respond now, as Reagan constantly tried to do, saying, yes, we are working on this disease. But the response appropriately in, in that sense was you don't have to worry about getting this disease from buses, from normal breathing of air, normal daily activities, um, that this does not look like the plague and don't shun these people and send every gay man or Haitian, because the Haitians were getting beaten on, the, the gay men were getting beaten on in terms of people looking to to really segregate these folks anyway, we're happy to use this as an excuse. Mm -hmm. So what did Dr. Francis and researchers like him do if there was no money? They improvised. 
When he needed a new containment room to keep HIV from getting out of the laboratory, he applied for funds and was refused. Never get permission to do that. Luckily, we had a handyman on the premises there, and Bud and I just went and got two by fours and sheetrock, and, and he built this thing without asking anybody. We had to ask him to take a month, but we had to ask to get this 10,000. Imagine, here we were in this big laboratory, and all I wanted was $10,000. Let's be clear. To keep his colleagues and the public safe from a deadly, unknown disease, Dr. Francis hired a handyman to build biohazard facilities out of sheetrock and two-by-fours. But if we want to understand the context for the do-it-yourself spirit of improvisation and collaboration among AIDS researchers, we have to go back to the very beginning of the epidemic in San Francisco, the summer of 81, where young gay men started being referred to dermatologists about the strange purple legions on their faces. Dr. Marcus Conant recalled cooking in his kitchen when he heard over the radio that young gay men were dying of pneumonia. That was February of 1981. A few weeks later, Conant learned that a fellow dermatologist he knew in New York was seeing cases of Kaposi's sarcoma. The next day, a case is mentioned during his rounds at his hospital at UC San Francisco. Conant was interested in Kaposi's sarcoma because it was caused by a recently discovered virus, cytomegalovirus, or CMV, and much of Conant's research was on herpes, a cousin of CMV. As an advanced research university, UCSF held a variety of specialty clinics where doctors from the area could refer rare cases for study and advice. Conant decided to take this idea and apply it to what he recognized was an urgent problem. Because you see, the difficulty was that these patients with KS would go into a dermatologist's office and they hadn't heard about this problem and they would reassure them that, well, they'd never seen anything quite like it, but it couldn't be too serious mm-hmm. and not to worry about it. Or they would take a biopsy and it would go to a pathologist who was not accustomed to seeing Kaposi's sarcoma and he would misdiagnose it. When you must remember that the average dermatologist would see one case of Kaposi's sarcoma in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that this extremely rare disease was now popping up all over, the fact that people didn't realize what it was or would miss it or would misdiagnose it is not only not surprising, it's surprising that the few who did immediately realize what it was did so. Mm -hmm. Be that as it may, I went to Bill Epstein, the chairman of the Department of Dermatology at the time, and I said, you know, I'm devoting most of my time to private practice, but I would like to take a morning a week and come over here and uh, start a clinic where we try to get physicians in the community to send these patients mm-hmm. with Kaposi sarcoma. Dr. Epstein, to his great credit, has always been willing to entertain a crazy idea. And uh, this was probably one of the craziest. So he said, well, Mark, I can furnish you the space and I can give you some nursing support but we can't give you a salary, we just don't have the money. And I said, that's fine, we'll donate the time, mm-hmm. but we uh, we need the space. And so we got the clinic set up, and then what I did immediately was start writing to colleagues in the area and giving presentations at meetings and saying, if you see these cases, please send them. And send them they did. What made you think that there would be an, enough to make a clinic feasible? I, I'm sure it's the experience with herpes. For some reason, from the beginning of the epidemic, uh, it, it seemed clear to me that this was not going to be something that was just limited. I, I think that part of it was 
my experience living in San Francisco, knowing that the gay community was sexually very active, mm -hmm. and if there was anything new in that community that could be transmitted communicably, that it was going to spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. It's just it was foolish to assume that it would not because yeah. all the all the diseases we'd seen syphilis, gonorrhea, uh, amoebiasis, everything had spread through that community with, with tremendous uh, rapidity. That was number one. Number two was, from the beginning, the number of cases of this problem were beginning to increase. Mm -hmm. In other words, from the very beginning, New York saw a few, and then a few weeks later they had a few more, and a few weeks later more. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same was true here in San Francisco. And everywhere we looked, we began to be able to find it. When I was a kid, my dad constantly played this game, he, he loved it, of handing you a penny and saying, which would you rather have, uh, a million dollars or for me to double this penny every day for a month, you know? And of course, the kid would immediately say, a million dollars. And then he'd make you sit down and calculate it out, and you realize that if you take a penny and you double that every day, next day you have two pennies, the next day you have four pennies, if you double that every day for a month, you have more than a million. What you've got is an exponential curve, and it's just going up just an incredible rate. And if it keeps doubling, it doesn't have to double many times before the numbers you're dealing with are just astronomical. And this epidemic from the beginning was doubling, and it was doubling in a period of about six months at that point. So Dr. Conant was able to piggyback on a tradition of clinical research at UC San Francisco and cajole physicians, nurses, and technicians to donate their time and resources to study the disease. The fact that AIDS was a manifestation of several different types of opportunistic infections made these weekly clinics a hotbed of research activity. Having the patients there uh, as, a, as a focus of, of interest uh, allowed us to invite people from other uh, disciplines to come. And so the clinic, by, by intent, but very quickly became a multidisciplinary clinic. It was not just a bunch of dermatologists seeing patients or a bunch of oncologists treating mm -hmm. cancer. And, and I might add, too, that many of these people heard about us and came of their own volition. I mean, we didn't go and say, would you please come and join? And so early on, there were lots of very bright people who realized, hey, but this is not only a challenge, this is really, really interesting, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, I should get involved. And, and many of them are not academics. For example, Dr. Arthur Holliday, for almost two years, drove up here once a week, donated all of his time, he got no income from it, did physical examinations on these patients, recorded their progress. Uh, absolutely essential uh, work, totally, totally gratis. Known as the KS Clinic at UCSF, it was the first organization devoted to researching this new disease. At the time, they had not yet related Kaposi's sarcoma to the cases of pneumonia that were being described down in Los Angeles. But by the summer of 1981, the connections were clear. Both diseases were occurring in gay men. Mm -hmm. Both of them were occurring in gay men who were in the fast lane, if you will, multiple sexual partners, and were living in New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. So not only was it gay men, but it was gay men whose behavior was exactly the same in both mm -hmm. groups. Uh, both of them were incredibly rare, new, if you will, conditions. Pneumocystis was as rare for the infectious disease specialist as KS was in dermatology. Um, and by that time, we knew that the KS patients and the pneumocystis patients were both immunosuppressed. So it was the same group of people, 
uh, in the same area, engaged in the same behavior with unusual diseases that were immunosuppressed. Mm -hmm. And so it then begins to come together. What was the initial impetus for looking for immunosuppression? Uh, the patients with pneumocystis that had been described previously had all been immunosuppressed. And those patients included people at the end of World War II, for example, who were terribly malnourished, patients with cancer, patients mm -hmm. who had had kidney transplants who had been treated with corticosteroids who were immunosuppressed. So it was felt that pneumocystis was a disease that was seen in the immunosuppressed host. Mm -hmm. Marcus Conant introduced new head of oncology at UCSF, Paul Volberding, to cases of KS, which piqued his interest as he had seen some cases himself. Although they had very little access to research tools, they did start to use the university's only T-cell counter, which was a brand new technology for testing the health of a person's immune system. To this day, we assess the health of patients with HIV in terms of their T-cell count. But at the time, there was no budget or funding for this work. Here is nurse coordinator Helen Schiedinger on how decisions needed to be made about rationing research and data collection. There were decisions after a certain point to stop doing things that seemed not useful. There was a continual review of what was useful to the, to the physicians. But all of this was being billed as medically necessary. There, there was nobody covering the costs of this. The physicians who worked in the clinic did it pro bono. They donated their time, and then the labs who wanted specimens did donate some of their lab tests. Um, I know that there was always an issue with the T-cell tests. They were very expensive, and the lab could not continue to do free tests. And there was, it was very difficult, I think, to justify the T-cell test. The lab was having a hard time covering the cost. So there was always that issue. Ultimately, however, the work was done by appeals to the sense of horror of the disease, its potential to become a much wider crisis, to the curiosity and ambitions of researchers, to the research interests of laboratories, and to the sense of common humanity and decency of all of these people. In the next episode, we'll explore what was unique about the connections between clinical researchers, public health researchers, and officials, and the gay community's own health organizations. This podcast was produced, written, and narrated by Paul Burnett. Editing by Ali Sherotis and Paul Burnett. Production and promotion assistance by David Dunham and Shanna Farrell. Special thanks to the band Do Make Say Think, whose music can be found at Constellation Records. Go to cstrecords.com or to your local record store to hear more. Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett. Thanks also to Scott Kalanico for his piece, When AIDS Was Funny, and to the archives of the Ronald Reagan Library, UC San Francisco, and San Francisco State University. All interview clips were taken from the Oral History Center collections, and the audio digitization was undertaken by David Dunham and the student employees Marissa Uribe, Carla Palacian, Amna Hawk, Holly O'Brien, and Cindy Jin. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the Oral History Center. Thank you for listening.